Good morning. <laughs> Welcome again to First Methodist Mansfield. I'm still David, one of the pastors here. And if you're a first-time guest, I'm still excited that you're here. I uh, hope you will come back next week. <laughs> if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you do not have your Bible with you uh, here in the chapel, there are some Bibles in the seats in front of you. And then upstairs, uh, we have some Bibles available for you as well. In those blue Bibles uh, that we have provided for you, you'll see the page number for John 13 uh, on the screen behind me. I want to encourage you to find that in either your Bible or the blue Bible. If for some reason you do not have a Bible, meaning you don't even have one at home, we would love to bless you with that gift. So please stop by. Uh, one of the connecting points just outside your worship space. We'd love to give that to you as our gift. Uh, and we'd love for you to bring that Bible back. We think it's a, a really powerful thing when you bring your own copy of the Bible with you uh, to worship. And so uh, I, I get so excited when I see people walking in to worship with their Bible. I want to encourage you to continue uh, to do that. I think that's a really, uh, really important thing. We are in the third week of a series called the 40-Day Challenge. And the focus of this series is one verse of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says this, He must become greater and I must become less. And over the course of 40 days, what we are doing is challenging ourselves to live more closely into that vision of Jesus becoming greater in our life while we become less. Now, some of you are taking this a step deeper. You're a part of one of the small groups that is going through the workbook that we published uh, as a supplement uh, for this series. We have about 120 groups that are doing that. And if you are and you're on schedule, some of you are a little bit behind, but that's okay. If you're on schedule, then last week... What you talked about was the clash of two kingdoms. And I want to talk a little bit more about that today. So just in case you're brand new or you're not in one of those groups, let me just review a couple of things for you real quick. First, let's talk about this language of kingdom. Why are we talking about kingdoms? The reason that we use uh, the kingdom language is because that is the language of Jesus. So if you look through the Gospels, you will find frequently in the teachings of Jesus, he talks about this subject known as the kingdom of God. Some of the Gospels refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. And one of the misconceptions that people often bring to the scriptures when they find that teaching that Jesus offers about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the misconception is that Jesus is just talking about where we're going to go later. That the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is simply where we go after our earthly life is over. And while there's some truth to that, that the kingdom of God is certainly that place where God resides, where God's will is done, I want to remind you of the prayer that we just prayed. We just prayed the Lord's Prayer together. The reason we call it the Lord's Prayer is because Jesus, when he was asked in the Gospels, how do you pray? This is the prayer that he gave us to his, to his disciples. He taught them to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So when you look at the Gospels and you look at this notion of the kingdom of God, you recognize that Jesus is not only talking about a future place that we get to go to when our earthly life comes to a conclusion, but he is also talking about a present reality. And what Jesus instructs us to do is to pray for that kingdom to come. So what is the kingdom of God? Here's a real simple definition. The kingdom of God, you might write this down, the kingdom of God is where God's will is done. That's it. Wherever God's will is being done in the world, what you are seeing and experiencing is the kingdom of God. Wherever God's will is being done. And the other thing we might summarize is that Jesus taught us to pray for this to happen. To pray for God's kingdom to come into our life, into our families, into our world. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to pray this prayer and to live into that prayer in everything that we do for God's kingdom to come here among us, the place where God's will is done. But here's the trouble. The trouble is that if we're going to be a follower of Jesus who is bold enough to pray that prayer, if you're bold enough to really pray that and mean that, to, to really seek after God's will being done in your life and in your world, part of what that means is that we often have to release our loyalty and our allegiance to any alternative kingdom where someone else's will is being done in order to fully embrace the place where God's will is done. We have to release our allegiance to our own kingdom, the kingdom where our will is done, in order to embrace God's kingdom, the kingdom where God's will is done. We have to release our loyalty to what someone else's vision might be for our life in order to embrace what is God's vision for our life. And that's not easy. <laughs> There's a tension there. There's the clash between those two kingdoms. And I want to talk a little bit more about that clash today. I want to give you a couple images so that you can think about what does it look like, what does the kingdom of God look like, and what do some of the alternative kingdoms that we often find ourselves giving our allegiance to look like in our world. And then I want to give you a framework. I'm going to give you a framework to think through where in your life do you need to release so that you can fully embrace God's kingdom coming into your life. So let's first talk about the world in which we live. I want you to think about the culture in which we live. And as you think about what is culture, I want you to think about culture this way. I've heard this definition before. I think it's the most helpful way of thinking about culture, that culture is like the water that fish swim in, okay? If you ask a fish, they can't talk, but let's just imagine. If you ask a fish, what does water look like? They go, I don't know. And yet they're in it they're in every single moment. It's all around them. And culture is kind of like that. I mean, there is some sense in which we can detach and look at things and say, well, yeah, that's what the culture is. And yet there's this other sense in which we're just surrounded by it every single day. And often we don't recognize how pervasive the influence of culture is in our life and in our thinking. So let me give you an image that I think describes the culture in which we live. And also, I think, will help us think through what is, how has the culture influenced us in the way in which we think. Let me just show you one thing. And some of you may know what this is. Some of you may not know what this is. How many of y'all know what this is? <laughs> it is not a... There were some young people in the front. I know what it is. Uh, this is not a torture device. This is a selfie stick, okay? Now, some of you don't even know what a selfie is, so let me, let me catch you up in case you're not as tech-savvy as your neighbors, all right? So a selfie is a picture that you take of yourself. <laughs> you probably could have figured that out, but I just wanted to... So it's a picture you take... But that, that in itself doesn't make it a selfie. Here, here's what makes it a selfie. You have to take a picture of yourself, and then you post it on social media... So that all the people in your life who are waiting for another picture of you can see that picture of you. It's, it's a public service, really, when you think about it, you know? <laughs> and here's what the selfie stick does. The selfie stick makes this so much easier. So just in case, you know, you have normal proportions and your arm isn't this long, you can put your phone right here. You kind of lock it in and then you plug this thing in into your phone, and then there's a button down here, and you can just, you know, you can just take pictures. 
all around. And you can, you know, I don't know why you would do this, but you could just walk around, you know, just, just watch yourself. You know, you got a little screen there. And you would think, who would do that? Like, no one would do that, right? Like, no one would walk around with the selfie stick. Well, let me just tell you, I just got back from Israel, the Holy Land, okay? The land where Jesus lived out his days. There's lots of things to see in Israel, okay? You go to Capernaum, the hometown of Jesus. You walk around the Sea of Galilee. You're in Jerusalem, the steps where Jesus taught. You're in all these cool places. You wouldn't think you'd see people walking around like this. And yet you do. There's people everywhere walking around with a selfie stick. Hey, here's me, Capernaum. Here's me on the steps. You know, they're watching themselves taking pictures. Again, public service. Because there's all these people in their life who just can't wait to see another picture of them. Now, if you have one of these, okay, it's okay. I'm not telling you to throw it out. This is not mine, by the way. Uh, I borrowed borrowed it from our student ministry staff. But... The reason I I lift this up to you, I'm not saying this is bad necessarily, but I am telling you, this speaks to the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the self, totally obsessed with it. And while, again, you may look at this and go, oh, how ridiculous. You have been trained in the culture in which we live. You have been trained to think first about what's best for you. Almost every message that you hear every single day as you move through the culture in which we live invites you to become obsessed with yourself. And in the culture that we live in, it is often unnatural for us to think beyond the realm of what's best for us. It feels a little bit odd to to think not what's best for you, but to think about what's best for those outside the realm of you and your kingdom. This is the world in which we live. So what I want you to do is I want you to contrast this image, this this understanding of our culture and what our culture really, how, how it trains us to think about our lives and ourselves with this image from John chapter 13. John 13, beginning of verse one, let me read this to you. It was just before the Passover Festival. Now, real quick, what is Passover? Passover is, for the Jewish people, a remembrance of God delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? It was an annual festival, an annual meal, that as, as you went through the course of that meal, you were reminded of not only the bitterness of slavery, but also the joy of being set free. And so each and every year, the Jewish people celebrate this festival, remember that moment in their history through the Passover meal. That's the time of the year that that we are in right now. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. uh, Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. This is the Passover meal. And the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Now, I want you to pay close attention to verse 3. Here's what it says. Jesus knew. Okay, Jesus knew, and then it tells us three things that Jesus knew. The first thing is, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That's number one. The second thing that Jesus knew, he had full clarity on, is that he had come from God And then the third thing you see there in verse 3 is that he was returning to God. 
So Jesus has come with his disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. He is there gathered with them, celebrating the meal that was an annual tradition for them. And as he comes to this moment, what John tells us is Jesus knew three things. He knew the power had been given to him. He knew he had come from God. And he knew that he was about to return to God. So connect with me what you, what you hear in verse 3 with what happens in verse 4. You might think of it this way, that because Jesus knew these things, this is what he did. Verse 4, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Conservative estimates would tell us that the population of Jerusalem at the time was about 60,000. But during Passover, the population would swell to about 300,000. Lots of people came to the city to celebrate this meal, to mark this annual remembrance of God delivering them from slavery. Jesus knew what was going to come next, but no one else knew. The disciples didn't know. The disciples didn't know that at the end of this meal, by the end of this night, Jesus was going to be arrested. Over the course of the night, he was going to face a hasty trial. They didn't know that within 24 hours, Jesus was going to face the ultimate, most humiliating death that the Romans could inflict upon anyone. But Jesus knew that. He knew he had come from God. He knew that he was returning to God. He had no illusions about what was going to come next. And so what does Jesus do? Knowing that his disciples are about to face this awful experience, knowing that he was about to leave them, his earthly presence, what does Jesus do? Well, we might think about what he didn't do. He didn't say, okay, pop quiz. Let's just review here real quick all the things that I've taught you for three years, okay? Could you repeat to me the Beatitudes? That's really important. I want to make sure that you got those things. How many loaves and how many fishes? Oh, I want you to, you got that? Or, or, or how about this? You, you, you might think, why didn't Jesus say, who's taking notes around here? Because that for God so loved the world thing, John 3, 16, people are going to want to put that on banners at football games later, okay? So you got to get that down, right? <laughs> Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't review he doesn't go back through everything that he has taught them. Instead, what does Jesus do? He gets down on his knees and he performs the task that was the task for the lowliest servant among them. He washes their dirty and smelly feet. Now jump with me to verse 12. Listen to what Jesus says about why he did this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And then he asked his disciples this question. Do you understand what I have done for you? This is a moment where I wish I could be there just to see the disciples like waiting. Who's going to answer? Who's going to answer? What's it? I don't know. You call me teacher, Jesus said. And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That might be a good scripture to underline in your Bible. I have set you an example, Jesus said, that you should do as I have done for you. Knowing that all authority and power had been given to him, knowing that he had come from the Father and then he was about to return to the Father. What does Jesus do? It's not pop quiz time. 
It's let me show you. Let me show you what love is. Let me show you what my kingdom is about. Let me set for you an example so that you may do as I have done for you. So here's the question. How do you live a life of sacrifice in a selfie stick world? How do you live a life of service in a world that is obsessed with the self? How do you follow Jesus? And and you understand what that means, right? I mean, you, you follow Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 9, you have to take up your cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is to follow the pattern of his life. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself. This is the pattern. This is the trajectory of the life of someone who chooses to follow Jesus. It's a life of emptying yourself. It's a life of service and sacrifice. It's a downward movement where we are emptied so that Christ may lift us up and and we may be glorified with him. We may be united with him in his death so that we may also be united with him in this new life. You've heard all this before. This is what it means to follow Jesus. How do you do that? in a world that has trained you to be obsessed with yourself? That's a hard question. But it's the question, isn't it? It's the question for anyone who's seeking to live out this, he must become greater and I must become less. It's the question that you have to wrestle with and I have to wrestle with, and I can't fully answer that question for you. That's the bad news. Uh, The rest of the message is not three steps, okay? Here's what you do. One, two, three, you're good. No, I can't do that for you. I can't resolve the tension of this question for you. Because part of following Jesus is walking into that tension. It's not resolution. It's it's being people who are willing to wrestle and to struggle with letting go of our allegiance to other kingdoms so that we can embrace the kingdom of God. Here's what I think I can do. I think I can give you a framework for thinking through this. I think I can give you a framework for prayerfully considering where in your life God may be calling you to release so that you may in turn embrace. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 139 real quick. About middle of the Bible is where you'll find the book of Psalms. Uh, 139. If you participate in the first 15, which is a devotional resource we produce, uh, this was one of the scriptures that you looked at this week. Verses 23 and 24. Listen to what David says, and I want you to hear this as a prayer that David lifts to God. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, I want you to hear that as a prayer. This is a prayer of David. I want you to hear what David's asking of God. David's saying, God, would you search out my heart that I don't fully understand? Would you test me and my anxious thoughts, these thoughts that I don't fully comprehend? And as you do this, God, would you point out to me any offensive way that lives in me so that I can live the life that leads to life everlasting. That's a great prayer. When you don't know what to pray in your life, when you find yourself confused and I don't even know what to do, 
Turn to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and just repeat that over and over again. That's a great prayer. God, search me. Help me understand myself, this self that I don't fully understand. Test my anxious thoughts, Lord, so that you can help me see what is it that is behind my fears? What is it that is behind my struggles? And if there's anything offensive in me, God, if there's any place where I'm holding on and my allegiance to this false kingdom is keeping me from embracing your kingdom, God, help me see that. Because I want to lead a life that leads to life everlasting. So I'm going to give you four questions today. You might write these questions down. These are not questions for you, per se. They are questions that you might ask of God. In your own prayer time, in your own devotional time, as you think through where in your heart you may need to release in order to embrace God's kingdom. So here's the questions. Number one, God, would you test my thoughts? Would you test my thoughts? And what we're looking at here is we're thinking about, just, just think about the last 24 hours of your life. As you think about your thought life, where has the focus of your thoughts been? Has the focus of your thoughts been on God's will coming into your life or your will being realized in your life? Has the focus of your thoughts been on your concerns and your needs or on the concerns and needs of those around you? All of us have voices in our head. Do you, do you know this? You're not crazy if you hear voices. If there's too many, there may be a problem. But all of us have an internal dialogue in our minds. And that internal dialogue interacts with what is going on in our world. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about that voice in your head that says, oh, no, what's going on? I'm worried. I'm scared. Does he like me? Does she what? You know, we have this internal dialogue that is in our head all the time. So one of the things we might ask ourselves is, when you think about that voice in your head, where is the attention being given to? Is it, is it about you and your life and your needs and your concerns and your worries, or, or is it external? Are you thinking about the people around you? Are you engaging with them in a way that, that is more healthy? So God, would you test my thoughts? What's going on in my mind? What's going on in my heart? Here's the second one, and this one may sound a little bit weird, but God, would you test my prayers? Would you test my prayer life? And some of you are thinking, well, I don't, even, I don't even really have a prayer life. I don't even know what that looks like. And that's okay, because this is a hard thing. I mean, prayer is a mysterious discipline. It's something you have to practice in your life. It's not something that you're just going to start and, oh my gosh, I just figured it all out. It is, it is a struggle. It is one of the places where we wrestle with God. That's what prayer is meant to be. But you might ask the question, well, what, where's the focus of my prayer life? Do I spend more time talking or more time listening? Am I praying about my needs or am I praying about others' needs? And as I pray about those needs and those concerns, those celebrations, whatever it might be, as I pray about them, am I praying for God's will to be done or am I praying for my will to be done? As you lift your own concerns to God, are you saying, God, I don't fully understand what's going on, but I want your will to be done in this, in this, in this area? Or you're thinking, God, will you just fix this? This is the outcome I'd like. Let me just place my order, and could you make this happen? Or what about when you pray for others? we got some parents in here. When you pray for your kids, ooh, this is a hard one. Are you praying for God's will to be done in their life, or are you praying for your will to be done in their life? Let me tell you, one of the things I struggle with, I struggle with praying for my kids in a way that says, God, I'm going to release them to what you want to do in their life, which may be much more ambitious 
and much more scary than what I may want them to do in their life. Are you praying for God's will? Are you praying for your own will? The third one is, God, would you test my attention? Would you test my attention? We live in a very fast-paced world, and in the world in which we live, sometimes the hardest place to be is right here. It's easier to be there or back there, but not right here. It's easier to be thinking about that worry that you have for the future or that regret you had from the past. But sometimes it's really hard to be right here with the people who are there with you in your life. Let me explain it to you this way, and this may not make sense to you. Some of you may want to may think I'm crazy, but this makes sense to me. Maybe it'll make sense to you. As you think about that internal dialogue in your mind and the people that you interact with every single day, is, is, does it match up? In other words, when someone shares with you a need or concern, do you first feel empathy and compassion or do you immediately jump to trying to fix their problem? Wives, don't hit your husbands, okay? And that's not what I'm... <laughs> do you immediately jump to... be? being the savior of the situation or do you as a human being simply interact with them on the level where you experience love and compassion and empathy and grace that's part of being fully attentive to the people in your life is to express and to live into those emotions with them before you jump to the next thing that you have to do that day or how you may want to address the problem that they may be facing that's one of the ways that you can you can challenge yourself about your attention. The last thing is, God, would you test my fears? Would you test my fears? And I just want to read you something I wrote as you think about the fears in your life and how God might test you in that area. The opposite of faith is not doubt. That's a common misconception. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Growing in faith is not the process of eliminating all doubt, but it is the process of conquering and moving past our deepest fears. It stings a bit to think about this, but one of the most self-centered things that we do is worry. Our allegiance, and I want you to hear that word very intentionally, our allegiance to anxiety is often a rebellion against God's invitation for us to surrender to Jesus as Lord and to fully embrace life in God's kingdom, a kingdom where we realize we have nothing to fear. Anxiety anticipates future failure, while faith anticipates God supplying our every need. Anxiety tries to maintain control Faith recognizes we don't have control, but we do have a God who loves us and a God who has claimed us as sons and as daughters. I want to challenge you in that particular area because in some ways, your anxiety and your worry may be a product of your allegiance and loyalty to an alternative kingdom. And it may be one of those places where God would say, you got to let that go if you're going to fully embrace life in God's kingdom, a kingdom where we hold on to by faith this idea that God loves us, that we are sons and daughters, and we have absolutely nothing to fear. How do you live a life of sacrifice in a selfie stick world where here's what, here's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. 
He, he took up the serving bowl and he washed feet. And, and he says in, in, in John 13, he says, I have done this. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So what I want to do as we close is to simply pray for you, to pray for me as we continue on this journey of living into this vision of Christ becoming greater in our life while we become less. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that everyone in the room knows what I'm talking about. I know that everyone here, Lord, knows about that, that internal dialogue in their minds. And everyone here recognizes, Lord, the influence of the culture in which we live. How unnatural it often seems to think beyond the realm of what is best for us. We live in a world, Lord, that has taught us to be obsessed with ourselves. But you call us to sacrifice and to service. You call us to follow you on this, this downward movement of uniting with you, Lord, in your death so that we can be raised to a brand new, a brand new life. And so I pray, Lord, for your grace and your wisdom to be at work in the lives of my brothers and sisters this week. I pray, Lord, that you will give them courage to spend some time in quiet before your throne, seeing you as Lord and giving space for you, Lord, by your grace to speak into their lives and to help them see what they may need to let go of in order to fully embrace this new and exciting life in your kingdom. May you bless them on this journey, Lord. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.